Bienvenidos to a special season-ending episode of El Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this episode, your hosts answer your questions about the Mestizo Church, mixed identity, and tell you what is coming next for the Mestizo Podcast. Elizabeth, ¿cómo estás? It's been months since we've actually recorded an episode together. It's been fun to hear the feedback of others, but it's been a while since you and I have actually talked. Yes, well, it's been a, a wonderful uh, season now in terms of the climate has changed. So while everyone else is sitting around sweating and putting on their fans and their ACs, I'm sitting around, you know, just enjoying the heat and singing zippity doo da and getting on everybody's nerves. Yeah, you ain't lying. It's been interesting. Uh, you know, some of these episodes that we recorded early, we said, you know, we're going home for Christmas and we're getting ready for X, Y, and Z Christmas related holiday stuff. And so it's interesting to be listening to that while also be doing summery or spring type things. Obviously, Corona changed some of that, but but it's been kind of fun to think about the way that seasons kind of overlapped for the Mestizo podcast. It has. It has indeed. And I'm glad to be back with you, Emmanuel. Uh, there's nothing like the way that uh, I feel that I grow when I'm in conversation with you. Well, thank you, man. I'm honored. I'm blessed by that. Uh, there's a listening party that gathers together for the Mestizo podcast. We'll have to share the link for that. Uh, we found a group of Latinos from all over the country who are gathering together to listen to and discuss the episodes of the podcast. But one of the things that's funny is I actually joined them once, uh, a couple times now, actually, uh, to talk about the episodes with them. And I, I say to them, and I say it now to the audience, uh, I, I'm honored by what you just said, Elizabeth, because oftentimes I'm the voice of the audience just saying, my mind is blown by what, what Elizabeth just said or what she just did with one of our hosts in terms or guests thinking about the theology of a particular topic. So it's been a fun learning experience for me. We want to thank all of our listeners. The feedback has been incredible for the show. Uh, we really have enjoyed uh, hearing from you. The questions that you've submitted are great. We're going to get into those in just a few minutes here. Uh, but we've really, really enjoyed hearing from pastors, ministry leaders, young and old, who are trying to make sense of what it looks like to do church together and to reflect the kingdom of God in their particular settings. One thing we want to ask you, while we've received great feedback personally and our social media platforms as well, if you're listening to this podcast and you're using an app that, that allows you to submit a review of the show, I'd love to ask you to submit a review, uh, maybe tell the world about how great the show is and how helpful it's been to you. It's really helpful and beneficial to us when people submit a review on a podcast platform. It helps the show to be found by others, maybe uh, give more access to it. And so do us a quick, a quick favor, give us a five-star review, tell the people how much you love the Mestizo podcast. That'd be a great help to us. The other thing that we want to remind you of is follow us on social media at, at World Outspoken. Uh, World Outspoken is the nonprofit uh, Christian ministry that helps to put on this show in partnership with AE. Uh, if you don't want to miss out anything on the Mestizo podcast or the other sources of uh, resources that World Outspoken puts on, uh, feel free to follow at World Outspoken on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, so you don't miss Lo Bueno Del Mestizo podcast or any of the other resources. Uh, one of my favorite things that World Outspoken recently put out was a review uh, where the title of the review, just to give you an idea, is Racism, a Discipleship Problem? Question mark. Racism, is it a discipleship problem? Really great review of a recent book that was published uh, dealing with this issue of discipleship and racism. And so want to check that out and check out all the other things that World Outspoken is putting on. Uh, Elizabeth, you want to remind people how they might get connected to AETH as well? Absolutely. You can get on by going to www.aet, as in Tom, h.org, aeth.org. And if you'd like to hear about these topics in relationship to um, how you will teach in relationship to how they pertain to the church in a more direct way and how the church prepares persons for ministry, then that is the um, organization that you want to check out as you're doing the Mestizo podcast. As Emmanuel mentioned, this is a partnership between both of our organizations and um, we welcome you to be a part of either one of those as you find your own place in ministry. 
Well, all right. So we promised that on the last episode, we would uh, actually answer fan questions, answer questions directly by the audience. And so that's what we're going to be doing. There have been a few questions that have been submitted that we really, we, we were selective. We picked out a few of the questions that really gave us some meat to chew on. Uh, some questions were repeated multiple times. There were a few questions that we'll answer here that actually got submitted uh, several times. And so clearly it's an important topic and we want to answer that as well. So we're going to jump right in. The first question is from Isaias Cruz in Birmingham, Alabama. We'll play the audio and then we'll answer. Hi, my name is Isaias Cruz. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I have a question for the New Mestizo podcast. How does um, these issues of identity for second generation immigrants, what has been your experience, particularly for uh, children of pastors here in the United States? Like how, how what has been your experience in terms of addressing that? And how can we as a Latino church best minister to um, pastor's kids, uh, specifically in the Latino context? Thank you. All right, Elizabeth, I wonder if we'd start with you on this question. He asked, how does these issues of identity shape uh, particularly pastor's kids? And how do we minister to pastor's kids? Isaias really would like to know how we minister to pastor's kids in light of some of the conversations we've had about mestizaje and mestizo identities. You minister to pastor's children in the same way that you would minister to any of your other youth and, and uh, young people, um, because they you need to be able to recognize them as a part of the whole, and they need to not be separated out, but made to feel a part of everybody else. I think that um, it, what becomes problematic for pastor's children is when we separate them out and call them pastor's children. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's this other category. Um, they don't need that. That becomes a burden. Minister to them as you would uh, any of the other young people in your group. I wonder, I think you're right. I think Isaias is getting at this idea that uh, the pastor's kid and the, the pastor themselves might even reflect the two generations we've been talking about all season. The, the pastor's child might be born here in the States. The pastor might be of the immigrant generation. Uh, I've been, uh, this is obviously a free plug. I'm not, I'm not supporting the show in that regard. I don't have an ad here, but I've been watching Taste the Nation. Uh, it's a show on Hulu about uh, the different foods that have come up as people have mixed here in the States. Very mestizo show, and I've been enjoying it. But one of the things that's funny is the show host, uh, she's actually Indian, and she talked about how uh, she was shook the first time her, her daughter said, mom, I don't really like lentils. And she thought, there's no way you don't like lentils. You're Indian. You have to like lentils. She says it in the show. And, and I remember thinking that right there is a great example of, of what happens in these tensions of mestizaje, of these tensions of the two generations, that the young child is changed, is different, is, is American in some ways. They don't honor the traditions in the way that we, we might expect them to. And, and so I wonder... Uh, for Isaias or for all pastors that are facing this issue, I do wonder if in some ways it's a blessing to have a child in your home that is, uh, you know, not liking lentils. Maybe uh, for, for us in Puerto Rico, for Puerto Ricans, my brother was like that, right? He, he would pick out the beans when he was eating rice and beans. He'd pick out the beans. And so I, I wonder if, if it's a bit of a blessing in that it, it helps us stay very aware about how traditions are changing and how... Uh, the second generation is, in fact, different. And the only other thing that I would say, something that I thought of when I was watching that TV show, actually, is on some level, we need to remember that these kids are still developing and that just like I did, um, there might be a day later in life where they want to return to those traditions and see them through a different uh, lens because they've gone through some life, right? They've, they've experienced some things that make them want to return to the traditions and maybe appreciate them in a way that they can't as children. And so, you know, we, as parents, I think we might want to remember that it's not the end of the story if the, if the kid or child says, I don't like lentils today. There's a future in which they still might. They still might appreciate those traditions. What do you think, Elizabeth? As you talk about that, um... I go back to my own understanding and training of how identity formation takes place, especially uh, ethnic identity formation. And it can actually look like a pendulum where you begin uh, within the identity of your family and your community because it is what you have been exposed to. And as you 
begin to see a different world. You go outside of your home, of your church, you go to school, you meet other people, you begin to see other perspectives, you begin to see other people attack um, your groups and so on and so forth. There may be a sense of shame. Um, you know, all of that comes into play. How is it that I begin to see the group that I belong to versus the rest of society? How is society seeing us and how is that impinging on me? And so people can uh, sort of uh, move toward not liking their own group. Uh, there's And there's a mix in between all of that, right? There, you know, I, this is the one thing I don't like about being Puerto Rican, that we mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, okay? And, right. and if we said that in Puerto Rico, it wouldn't be such a big deal, right? right? If you pick out your beans in Puerto Rico, it's no big deal. It's like, ay, este muchacho no le gusta las habichuelas. Yo no sé a quién salió. Right. Okay? <laughs> but if you don't like your habichuelas or your frijoles, as others would say it here in the United States, it's like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. You know, he's no longer Mexican. He's no longer Puerto Rican, whatever. He, he doesn't like it. Um, you know, it's it's that move, the fact that we moved and what identity means here that makes it such a big deal. Right. And it's how we navigate this, um, these tensions, these awarenesses of how we are looked upon and so on and so forth. So we hit that pendulum. But then we, we then go into another space where perhaps we um, experience discrimination because of who we are. And as much as I thought that, you know, all my friends who are of the majority culture, they love me, they're wonderful. All of a sudden I hit this place of discrimination because I'm dealing with institutions, I'm dealing with, you know, a place of work or what have you. Then the pendulum can sway way over to the other side again, right? right. And then all of a sudden I am more Puerto Rican than Puerto Ricans anywhere. (laughs) That's right. Right? And so now, but but if you look at it, I'm really being selectively Puerto Rican, right? I'm selecting certain things uh, that really make up who who I think is the best of the Puerto Rican. And so all of the decor of my home, uh, the pictures that I put up, you know, the restaurants that I frequent, et cetera, et cetera, right? They're all going to be an expression of that. But then we have to come back. Uh, we have to come back to a place where we can live alongside of others. And we begin to, one more time, uh, relook at that piece and to embrace others. Uh, we do it cautiously and we begin to understand that there are going to be some battles here and what, what hill do I want to die on or not and so on and so forth. So it's a navigation, it's a fluidity throughout our lives depending on the interaction that we have. And that's going to be different for all of us. It's also uh, different for the first generation in terms of how they adapt, how much adaptation takes place or doesn't take place, you see? So all of that is taking place for two different generations at the same time in the same home. And in a church, it plays out as well. Yeah, and I think so, to your point, to, to put, a, to put a, a fine point on it, I think to your point, we shouldn't treat the pastor's kids as A, ambassadors for the pastor's desire to see the church stay culturally one thing or be as something different or separate from other kids who are going through that formation as they try to make sense of their identity here in the States. I think that's what what we're saying in that. That's right. Okay. Well, next question. Uh, Anne Mendoza from Boston, Massachusetts. She wrote us, I'm going to read her question. She wrote it in for us. I'll read the whole thing here. She says, how do you think we can encourage the Latinx church to support and encourage long-term missions or missionary careers and or missionary careers? She says, from my experience in missions, the Anglo church has supported me through and through. Uh, The Latinx church has been more cautious and semi-uninterested. She says, honestly, it put me in a position where I, where I had to choose between the church to call, which church to call home. And on my time on the mission field, I have noticed that the majority of missionaries are from the Anglo church. In other words, I was the only Latina serving in Latin American country, and that makes me extremely sad. Uh, and I really want that to change because I know that God has called us to, us meaning Latinos. Really interesting question, Anne. Uh, I thought I would start by saying, I see this all the time with my students at Moody. Uh, I have students who show up to Moody from 
ethnic churches of a variety of types, but particularly Latino students who, when they arrive to Moody, they get introduced to a variety of experiences and opportunities that they simply didn't have in their home churches. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the things that I took advantage of in my time as a student was I went overseas to support some missionaries in the Philippines for a while. I did it actually two years back to back where I spent some time in the Philippines supporting existing uh, existing missionaries by coming in to help uh, supplement some ministry that they were already doing. And so it's a beautiful model, but it's not a model that is common among Latinos. And so when I was raising support or when students at Moody attempt to raise support for these kinds of trips, uh, what, I, what I found was a lot of their Latino parents are super confused. Like, hold on, wait, what? You're going on a missionary trip? You know, what church is sending you? Oh no, it's a thing for school? Hold on, what? How does this work? And why are you sending me a letter directly? Why isn't a pastor, you know, raising the funds? What, what I find is that there essentially is a cultural way of doing things and, and even maybe a theological way of understanding ecclesiology, meaning this, in Latino churches, traditional Latino churches, if someone is going to be sent over, send overseas uh, to do any kind of missionary work, typically what happens is the pastor uh, expresses that calling to the rest of the church. Maybe on a Sunday, he says, in this case, Anne is called to be overseas. Uh, we really feel that the Lord is calling her there. We want to support her in that. So we're going to be raising una ofrenda especial para mandar uh, a Nuestra Señorita Mendoza to such and such a place, right? We really believe that the Lord is calling her to that. And the church would raise the funds. There might be a commissioning Sunday. And then the church, uh, having collected the funds from the individual families, gives that collection of money to uh, the missionaries so that they can go forward in their missions. Now, that, that's what I find to be common among Latino churches. But these mission trips, uh, the ways that they happen, at least at Moody and in other more majority culture, white culture places, the support model is different right? You would have uh, the missionary send letters directly to families uh, expressing their call to go to a specific place and their desire to minister there doing X, Y, and Z. And that's foreign to Latino communities. This idea of uh, support raising going from, uh, from person to missionary, from family to missionary, it's just not common. And so I think what, what Anne is encountering, uh, Elizabeth, is a cultural, ecclesial difference between how churches raise uh, support for, for ministry. And I think that there's maybe a intercultural gap that's happening there. What do you think? Well, it has to do with community versus individualism. Um, majority culture is about individualism. So the individual, the person is the one responsible for um, getting their funds. And so they are asked to, or they're permitted to go from family to family, et cetera. What's missing from there is very much what you said, that the church as a whole, I mean, they may announce it and they may say, you know, Emmanuel Padilla is going to be going to the Philippines. Uh, if he sends you a letter, please, you know, uh, respond positively to Emmanuel so that our church can be seen as having a missionary overseas. Um, but in the Latino church, you're very right. Um, it is a communal piece and we understand ourselves as being a sending community. And that's how uh, that's how we do it. Now, the other thing that has to do with it is the fact that um, it also has to do with uh, how people are able to do this. Um, you have uh, economic differences in our churches sometimes as well. Um, sometimes not everyone in the church is able to do that. And if you're going to go to somebody and ask for that ofrenda, um, that ofrenda then might conflict with the ofrenda for the church. Right. And we want to make sure that that's not what's taking place. We want to make sure that we're looking at a big economic picture of how we do this. And so this is not just for, you know, a one trip. This is a, a long term commitment that people are making. And I understand, you know, uh, where Anne would be at. Um, the way I've done that as a pastor is to say Emmanuel Padilla is going to be going to the Philippines. And this is not just an event. Emmanuel is going to be there for three years, and we want to make sure that we can support him for three years. So in our church, right, and we do this as a church council or whatever the governing bodies are in the church. So in our church, we've decided, the pastor makes the announcement, that we want to uh, collect una ofrenda for Emmanuel every six months. And we're going to be sending that to him 
In the meantime, Emanuela is going to be sending to us information about what's going on and what are the needs of the community that he is doing there. So uh, part of that is also that we are not only embracing you, but we're going to embrace the work and the community in which you are doing that work, right? So churches sometimes send their own people to go out rather than uh, have a school do it or have a missionary organization do it. A church might start a work someplace else and then people from the church are seen as the ones who are going to support that work. Different from the mentality of um, a majority culture missionary understanding, what tends to happen in the, in the uh, Latino church is if I begin a work in another country, in Ecuador, eventually I'm not going to need the missionary from my church except as a person who starts it, gets it going. And the most important thing that they have to do is to start new, to disciple and get new leaders from Ecuador ready to take on that work. So that there isn't the need for such a long-term investment because we're not creating dependency. It's not a dependency model. It's not a model that comes from colonization. That's what tended to happen in the history of missionaries in our countries is that they didn't know when to leave and to allow us to take on the leadership of that. And that's also a part of this paradigm, right? Um, so, and if you're going to go there, you want to empower the leaders in that, in that area and make sure that they can take on the work and that they make your, uh, your job there uh, obsolete. And then you can go someplace else and do the same thing. Um, that's how Paul did it. If you think about it, that's how Paul did it. Um, so those are the, some of the differences to why these things happen. I think there are two things you said, Elizabeth, that I think are worth honing in on. Uh, number one, you brought up early uh, in your talk, uh, in your answer, I want us to be careful not to say, you know, that that there aren't means within small Latino churches to send missionaries, because Lord knows that th we are a giving people, and uh, and we're happy to give towards the things of the church. But just like you said, uh, the church is much more committed to giving and sending from within the local body to a ministry initiative started by that local body. And mm -hmm. so, and I, I don't know Anne's situation. I don't know if she's a student at a school or if she's going with a missionary board, something big like team or even crew or something like that. Uh, but but this idea of missionary organizations is a little foreign culturally and, and ecclesiology uh, and in our ecclesiology of the church, it's pretty foreign to the way that Latinos do it. And so one of the things that I recommend to my students that I would say to address that first point uh, that you brought up, Elizabeth, is uh, I make sure to insist that my Latino students, I, I teach a freshman level class, so I meet a lot of them when they're first at Moody. I say, hey, you got to make sure to keep that connection to your local church back home alive and well, and that they remember that you are here as a student in the same way that they send other people to do missionary work. In other words, you're a sent one, sent by them in this case to get further training. And that when you send back an opportunity like going to the Philippines or something like that, that, that is part of the training that they sent you here to do. And so you, you have to make sure you keep to them a, a fresh reminder that, that you've been called by them and sent by them to do the studies that you're doing. And so that, that usually helps the students to, to raise support or, or to open up other initiatives. It certainly helped me as a student. Uh, I always went back regularly during the breaks as a student to my local church. And you know how the pastors Latino they, oh, uh, Emmanuel is back from his time at Moody. Why don't we have him come up and, and greet everyone? But in that greeting, I didn't just say hello, right? I'd make sure to express a gratitude for being sent out by the church, the support that they've given me. And I'd make sure to tell some anecdotes of some of the ways in which I've been preparing for ministry. So that's the first thing I would say in light of what you said, Elizabeth. The second thing you said is the colonization piece. That one's really important to this conversation, right? There, there is a model for ministry among Latinos that is simply different uh, in regards to equipping quickly leaders and then leaving them the room to grow at the local level. 
Everything happens at the local level as opposed to being sent from a larger international structure. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that, Elizabeth? Only that um, part of what also takes place there is that we have to understand that there's a lot going on on the home front as well. That there are foreign missions and then there are home missions. And it's very important that we understand how our local church tries to balance those two pieces. Um, first generation churches might still be connected to places of origin. And it's from that sentiment that we might be sending someone uh, back to those countries to do some work. But at the same time, the more that a church becomes grounded in being here in the United States, the more they then realize the inequities, uh, economic inequities and so forth in the community where they are. And that if they didn't do home missions and do it properly, they would be irrelevant in that community. Yeah. And so part of how we balance our callings is to ask that as well. Our callings are connected to the calling of that church. What is the yeah. purpose of that church in that community? And that's very important. Um, majority culture churches, it's much easier for them to send missionaries abroad than to have to deal with people from those same countries around the corner from them. Yeah, to put it candidly, right? Uh, that That's kind of the way whiteness shapes churches, right? Where they think we need to go overseas to do missions, but the same kinds of needs present themselves here locally. And they might not be addressed in the same way, often often aren't addressed in the same way. That's right. And they become um, issues that are difficult. Look at the pandemic right now. Those who are being most affected are persons who are coming from Latin America, persons uh, who are African-American. And it shows the great inequality for those communities. And so where has the church failed? in its mission right here where we are. And when I say the church, I want to talk about the church at large. Why have we not had the kinds of partnerships that help us to deal with those inequities here at home? And that's yeah. part of our home missions as well. So that leads to our second question, which our next question rather, which I think is related to this issue of home missions, international or foreign missions, and the ways in which um, you know whiteness might be affecting or, or or colonial colonial ideas might be affecting the way in which we do church or do ministry. Uh, our brother David, uh, we know him. Uh, he's from LA. He submitted a question. He's a friend of ours uh, at IE. Uh, but David James, he says this. He says, can you tell us more about the limited or missing dialogue between U.S. Latin Americans and Latin America at large? Uh, this goes to your point that these churches here might still have some relation or connection to the churches back home, but it is a little bit different. Uh, Elizabeth, what, what do you say? What can we say about that limited dialogue that exists between U.S. Latinos and Latin America at large? This came up in our episode related to... Um, Women in Ministry, when Angelica, our guest, she said, you know, my experience was different back home in Venezuela. It just was not the same uh, as the experiences held by women here uh, in the States. So what do we say to that? Well, uh, there are two things I'd like to talk about. One is um, for those of us who are second generation, our relationship to uh, the countries from where our ancestors came, our parents, our grandparents, etc., is limited to begin with and is difficult. Um, it, it's difficult at home when those two cultures kind of come together, right? Uh, when we see the culture back home as being a culture that is um, restrictive. Uh, if, you know, si estuviéramos en Puerto Rico, tú a mí no me levantas la voz de esa manera. Yo no sé qué le pasa a los muchachos aquí. Okay, so <laughs> it's like I don't want to be in Puerto Rico then because they're not going to understand me because yo soy de los muchachos de aquí, right? So we create that you know sort of mentality. It becomes 
you know, more difficult that way. So that makes it restrictive. It's also restrictive because it takes a lot of money to go back home. If I want to go to Guatemala or what have you, it takes a lot of money to do that. And if we're going to do it as a family, we really have to, you know, sparse it out and figure out when we're going to do that in terms of our economic um, priorities. But then there's also the fact that we don't know each other. Um, Orlando Costas was a Puerto Rican who was a 1.5 generation. He was a, a theologian and he uh, was a, a prolific theologian and talked to these issues many times. And when he went uh, as a missionary actually uh, to Latin America um, to teach there, he found that it was a very different culture, cultures, eh? because Latin America is a lot of different cultures. So he found that there was a lot of different cultures and he became a part of the uh, Fraternidad Latinoamericana de Teologos. And within that, El Ere Pajaro Raro, right? Where is this guy coming from, right? Where, what, what are his issues about? What are his perspectives? And they had to learn to love him, to understand him and to listen to him. Um, and he always tried to have a dialogue going uh, between leaders of both countries. And actually, you can be a member of the Fraternidad Latinoamericana de Teologos um, as a Latino living in the United States. You can be a part of that organization. Um, and I have found that sometimes the issues that we talk about are very different and that you have to sort of uh, transfer yourself into another world in order to deal with those issues and so forth as a person from the diaspora. But the truth of the matter is that we have not come to know one another. In order to have a dialogue, you've got to get to know one another. And a good dialogue has to start from a neutral place. Um, because if, if we're having a dialogue with the majority of people from Latin America, then those of us from the diaspora, you're not going to be really listening to us. The, the, the conversation is just going to take its own rumbo in that, in, in that other, on that other side. And, and likewise, you know, vice versa. So we need to find a, a neutral ground and we need to say, this is a space for us to get to know one another, for us to get to know each other's realities, for us not to criticize and judge one another, because there's a lot of that that has kept us from the dialogue. For us to talk about the theologies, the ecclesiologies, etc., that uh, help us to be in solidarity with one another. And what are the things that have not helped us to be together? What has separated us from one another? And there you can begin to have a dialogue. Um, it's like anything else. You got to get to know each other if yeah. you want to have real dialogue. I've seen this uh, in real time on the Moody campus. There's a student group at Moody uh, called Puente. It's for uh, it's supposed to be for uh, students committed to ministry among Latinos and who care about Latino issues. And what was interesting is I'm an advisor for that student group. And so I'm speaking from my experience as a professor here. What, what I found is that for quite a long while, for many years, the students who joined Puente tended to be international Latinos, right? They were stu international students who came from their countries of origin, um, Costa Rica, Peru, Guatemala, that kind of thing. But the students who were Latino and who were born here in the States, they tended to join. There's a, there's a similar kind of group on Moody's campus for uh, students of color, specifically for African-American students. It's called Embrace. A lot of our Hispanic students who were born here in the States tended to go to events hosted by Embrace or put on by Embrace, but didn't engage much the uh, same meetings held by Puente. And so part of the reason I became an advisor uh, of Puente was because we were trying to figure out, uh, ironically, given the name of the group, how to bridge, how to create a Puente between the international students who were arriving to the States to be students at Moody and those who were born here. Uh, there were great differences in the ways that they thought about addressing issues. Uh, one of those differences, one of those key ones is a lot of the students who came, who were born here in the States, I'll just bring up one of the things that would come up often. They were suspicious of Moody, suspicious of being at a white school, suspicious of 
you know, some of the theologies that they would be learning or those kinds of things. And so they, they wanted the student group to be a kind of safe, safe space for them to talk about their discomforts or concerns, so forth and so on. The international students had a much more positive view of the school. They were arriving from a, a country to gain what they thought was wonderful theology and excellent training. And so it created a very different uh, perception or, and even to some degree, some hostility between one group and the other. Why do you have such a positive view of Moody? The, the students born here would say, why do you have such a negative view of Moody? The international students would say, right? And so uh, there was a difference of perception of the very thing that they were experiencing together. And so we were having to address some of that. Um, I think that uh, David's question is getting at, how do we start to create el, el puente, the bridge between those different interactions? And I think one of them is acknowledging that, uh, maybe, maybe I should say it this way, not acknowledging, but having some patience with our international brothers and sisters when their perceptions of things are not quite the ones of those who have been here for a long time. Uh, the American dream, I think we've all soured on it. A lot of us here born in the States have soured on it. We're not here for it anymore, right? Uh, and some of our international brothers and sisters still might uh, have bought into it, still might be really passionate about experiencing it. And so I think there might be a level of patience we need to have as we enter these dialogues. What do you think, Elizabeth? That happens at every level, not only in terms of students, that happens between scholars. So one of the things that institute, you know, it's, and it's about power too. Um, the higher up you come, the more it's about power. So institutions here in the United States, uh, theological institutions uh, wish to hire someone who is international rather than someone who is living here in the States for that very reason, right? If they hire me, I already know the, I already know how they play the game and they can't, they can't roll this over me. They can't, you know, pull wool over my eyes because I'm going to call them on, on the carpet about it, right? So I'm much more difficult to deal with in an organization if that organization is just inviting a Latino just to say that they have one, that they're not really wanting to integrate. And so instead, they're going to hire an international um, person. Right? Someone coming from Guatemala, someone coming from Costa Rica, from Mexico, they're going to hire that person to come here. They don't know what the rules of the game are yet. And they can be more easily manipulated. As you said, you know, they're into the American dream perhaps. And, and this feels like one, a wonderful thing for them that they were hired here in the United States and, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, now they have arrived. And once they're into the institution, you know, one to two years in, they start realizing what's really happening, that they were hired to do window dressing. And now they want to have the conversation with me, you see? Um, so, uh, and it becomes a difficult piece because it's hard for me to sit here and listen to you talking about the American dream, or more importantly, it's hard for me to understand why it is that you don't want to take political action around an issue because for you, living here is much better than uh, perhaps where you came from. And you don't understand the history that if we had not protested years ago, then you wouldn't have it so well here today, right? Or what you yeah. think is having it so well. So there, there's all of that history that also changes. Uh, which sours the dream, as you said, there were the power pieces and so on and so forth. And having those conversations in a room is not about having a, a, a comfortable conversation, right? But like you said, we need to learn to be patient so that we can listen to one another and not judge. There is a judging that also takes place, right? I yeah, judge we you, should be self-critical in that regard. Me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should be self-critical in that way. A lot of us born here tend to, uh, uh, you know, we, we haven't talked much about colorism in the, uh, in the podcast. Uh, we actually have an announcement coming up here in a bit that might bring that up. But uh, one of the things that I find is a lot of the Latinos born here, they, they do something similar to the colorism. Now, I speak English. I don't have that problem like those international students, right? Uh, they, they might say something wild like that. I speak English. That ain't my problem. Or for our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters, I, I say this as one who, 
who thought wrongly on this. So, so I'm being self-critical when I say this, but we don't want to be aligned with the internet, the immigrant Latino, right? We want to say, no, I'm a citizen. I haven't had that problem. Right. And, uh, and that's wicked, quite frankly. It's it's a uh, it's not solidarity as the gospel would prescribe it. And so I think part of that is we need to be a little self-critical of the ways that we uh, want to move up the scale here in America by by keeping other people down or different than us, distinguished from us. And what we need to realize is that this comes from a history of colonization. Why we're here in the first place has to do with colonization. Uh, why we've had to live these different histories. Uh, we've experienced the same dynamic from two different sides is, is the common piece that we have to find together, right? Rather than seeing each other as different animals, we have to say, what are the roots of what has made us different? Why is it that I've had to move? Why is it that um, I'm seeing this way, you're seeing that way? What has taught me to see you as a different thing and why are we on, on on different sides of this and and that's that's part of what will help us to come to the dialogue to look at those raices those origins of uh, this dynamic That's really good. I think that leads to our, our next question. So I want to take us there. Uh, Araceli from Lake Forest, California, she writes this. She says, friends and ministry leaders fear supporting Black Lives Matter uh, because of its attachment to other issues we aren't ready to support. How do we encourage pastors to support pursuits of justice when they fear getting entangled with other matters? Uh, I think that's a really good question. And it, it gets at some of the differences that happen between Latinos. There are Latinos who who fear, or, or maybe put it more bluntly, oppose supporting issues like Black Lives Matter because of its association to other issues. And let's, let's put things candidly. Uh, one of the main issues that comes up among these more conservative pastors is the Black Lives Matter organization's association with LGBTQ plus communities. Uh, I think the organization itself, the BLM organization, has a clear stance uh, in support of LGBTQ plus rights. And, and I think our, our ministry leaders and friends um, may, may have some fear or even opposition to supporting BLM because of that. Elizabeth, before you answer, I do want to say something to Araceli's question and to our listeners. I think it's important that we be really careful and clear when we talk about BLM, Black Lives Matter. There is a difference between Black Lives Matter, the organization that started because of Ferguson and those kinds of things. There's a, there should be a, a distinction made between Black Lives Matter, the organization, and BLM, the movement. Or even if you wanted to put it more simply, BLM, the hashtag, right? Where When people say Black Lives Matter at large, often they're referring to the movement of justice uh, in support of the African-American community that has been so... Uh, wrongfully oppressed here in the States, not so much the specific organization that helped to start this movement. And so it's important that we make that distinction that BLM, the movement has a great deal of diversity and complexity uh, among the people who say that phrase or use that phrase, their beliefs, their ideology, it's much wider than simply the organization itself. Just like we would say among the church, there's a difference of views and positions around other issues like the LGBTQ plus issue, right? And so there's complexity there in that. And we should distinguish those two things. Elizabeth, your thought? Among us as a Christian community, there are many um, theological differences. Um, we can describe those differences on the spectrum of liberal or conservative. We can describe those differences in all kinds of ways. But um, so within us, let's just recognize that we have uh, theological differences. How should we deal with those? How should we deal with those? That's, that's the question. Do we exclude one another because of those differences? Because if that's how we understand difference, then, yeah, the only way that we can handle uh, looking at the movement, as you said, is to exclude ourselves from it because um, I, don't, I don't agree with these things. Or if we don't agree, 
can I continue to maintain my identity and my principles on what it is that I agree, that I hold to, while at the same time understanding that this is a moment in time in which you and I need to stand together beyond our differences in order to make something greater happen, right? Uh, so, and I don't need to agree with you fully in order to do that. I can be in solidarity with you, even if I don't agree with you fully. And it doesn't take away my integrity. It does not take away my integrity if I do that. Now, because we have a community understanding of ourselves, and, and we mentioned that before, here's where the community piece kind of bites us in the butt, because since this is about community, oh, ¿qué es lo que tú estás representando allí? Porque tú estás con una comunidad. You know, what are you representing there? And that's what uh, makes it difficult, right? So we need to have these conversations because first of all, becoming a part of a movement, especially a protest movement is new to um, the Latino community, especially for first generation pastors. Um, and there's reasons for that. And maybe in the uh, coming podcast, we could talk about some of those pieces, right? A reason to stay tuned. But um, if... So, so those issues uh, have always been looked at as this is why I must exclude myself. However, what happens to how I represent Christ when I exclude myself? If I were to exclude myself from everything that I think is pecaminoso, etc., but where Christ needs to be present in order to have justice and equity take place, then I am limiting the understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is Lord of every arena of life, I might find myself excluding myself in order to become theologically pure, right? And so I stay in my corner over here because I can't mix with you, uh, Emmanuel, because, you know, you're, you're holding on to this or you're hanging out with people who believe in X, Y, and Z. And so I come out here. But in the meantime, Jesus might actually be calling us into a space where Jesus is trying to do a work. And that, I think, is what Jesus did, which got him into a lot of trouble with the religious leaders of his time. Jesus was not pure. Jesus was not pure, right? He hung out with the Samaritan. He hung out with people who didn't eat kosher. He hung out with, uh, with the publicans. He hung out with those sinners, right? He, he let a, an adulterous woman, uh, you know, uh, be present. He allowed himself to be touched by lepers, etc. All of that had to do with purity laws. Why are we holding on to purity laws when our Christ didn't do that? Our leader, my religious leader, didn't do that. My religious leader was courageous. My religious leader moved beyond that in order to say, I am moving, right? Jesus is moving into these arenas to be Lord of these arenas. And therefore, I'm going to be countercultural. As far as not being united with others, because Christ is Lord, and that right. is the one that I follow. I follow a Christ for whom all of these arenas belong to him. Yeah, And I don't There's need a, to be afraid of being impure. That's right. There's a counterintuitive nature to what you said, Elizabeth, in the sense that being countercultural is about leaning in and, and joining the advocacy for Black Lives as opposed to staying polarized and separatist and purist, right? That, that's the counterintuitive. We, a lot of times people think of themselves as countercultural by being separatist, by standing yes. out. No when, soy de este mundo. Exactly. When in fact, being countercultural in this cultural time and space where people are polarized and separating out and drawing lines in the sand is to step in. I think of, we have a lot of friends in this area uh, I think of Robert Chao Romero, who who refers to himself as a minister and a church to activists, right? Uh, and one of the churches that he ministers in is a church specifically ministering to activists, right? Uh, I think that 
uh, I'll tell part of my story. I, I have used the phrase Black Lives Matter. I have uh, done things actively. World Outspoken has done things actively uh, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, and now I have colleagues from Moody that have asked questions about that, right? And one of the things that's important to say, just as you said here, Elizabeth, is we want to reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this sphere as well. And our narrative and, and our narrative, our message is still distinct, even within the movement, even as we say, as we uh, adapt, contextualize to certain language, like the language of Black Lives Matter. We also have certain things we bring to the table in our conversations that are distinct. And then I, I want to say one practical thing. Um, you know, in Chicago, there is uh, there's a significant gay community. Right. Uh, and I think it's important to remember uh, the LGBTQ plus community assumes the church is against them. <laughs> they just assume it. They assume it. And by, by joining protests for Black Lives Matter, uh, my experience has been that I have not met a gay person who then thinks, oh, you must be supportive of me then too. In fact, they're still suspicious. So for those pastors who are, are fearful that by joining a BLM protest, they are then saying to the gay community, I support this, right? That, that's a little silly. And, and on some level, it, it, it shows maybe a lack of actual engagement and relationship with those in the LGBTQ plus community. They, they just don't do that. They don't, they don't assume right away that they can trust you as a safe person in that regard. It's not how it works. And so, so I think we, we need to be honest, too, about what actually happens, as opposed to making kind of an abstract or theoretical gay person that's going to have some beliefs about us, because that's just not how it happens. I would like to invite persons to, because this is about how, you know, to, to look at this piece, we need to reflect deeply and not just hear Emmanuel or Elizabeth, right? And I think that the spaces where we usually go to um, reflect on these pieces are scripture. And I would invite people to look at Colossians 1 and to, to understand what it means there. The, Colossians 1 is, is what was called uh, the hymn of Christ. And what we want to be able to do is to look with attention to those verses, particularly verses 15 through 23, and how it speaks about uh, who Christ is, his supremacy, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's Paul's answer to emphasize who Jesus Christ is in relationship to God, to creation, to the church, to the world around. And it's a very important uh, piece. I think that uh, I'd like to invite our, our listeners to take a look at that piece for themselves and uh, in the light of what we're saying and to see where they hear the Spirit uh, speaking to their lives. Yeah, amen to that. Well, hey, we don't want to belabor the point too long here, but there was a question that was submitted several times, but maybe one of the main questions that we got uh, through our World Outspoken um, collection here related to the Mestizo podcast, and it's this. Uh, I'll just read the question anonymously rather than attributing since we had it multiple times. It says, by calling the show the Mestizo podcast, are you erasing Afro-Latinidad? How am I, an Afro-Latino, Latina, included? a fair question. It's, uh, I think, a good question worth asking. Um, and I'm glad that we, we get to tie up these questions by addressing this one. Um, maybe, Elizabeth, I'll let you answer first. And, and then I'm going to pull up a quote that I'd like to read and, and maybe talk about how we think about this at World Outspoken. So we need to sort of uh, take that um, phrase, that, that term, mestizaje, and ask what are its origins. Um, originally, the meaning was used um, in a derogatory way to speak about uh, persons who were mixed between European descent and uh, First Nations descent persons. Um, and so if you were a mestizo, that's how I would refer to you. Um, well, I'll say that a little bit later. But um, what happened with the term is that it was later redeemed. That the term that was used as a derogatory sense was redeemed and is now being used to identify people in positive ways, to identify the positive, the positive uh, characteristics and nature 
of what it means to be a Métisson. And so the term is then uh, used in a revolutionary way to celebrate that part of identity. Later on, philosophically, the term is also uh, taken to another level to include many differences. It's used as a symbolic term to include many differences, many mixes of persons. And in that sense, it can be used or it is used uh, by many to also include our Afro-Latinidad. Um, in Latin America, we also have persons who are mixed with uh, Asian groups. We have Korean, Peruvians, uh, and so on and so forth. And so it's to, it's a coined phrase now that extend to, extends to all of the mixes. And theologically, that's also how the term has been used, so that it now includes, uh, it, it's a term of hybridity, and it includes a whole social cultural matrix of intergenerational dynamics. However, as good mestizos here on this podcast, we sh we, we're okay, I think, with opening up the term. And right. it's saying, hey, maybe not everybody feels like this is the, the, the terminology that does include them, right? We have this understanding, pero eso no quita, that somebody might still feel uncomfortable. And so uh, there are other terms that can be used. Um, the question is, how do we uh, redeem other pieces? Um, just a quick example um, Dr. Loida Martelotero, who is a constructivist theologian, Latina, um, she speaks about us as being mestizos, mulatos, and satos, right? Satos speaks to someone who's a whole bunch of mixes. Okay? And so uh, she expands that in that way. So what, you're, what, are you, what are you thinking? You know, how... You're the one who does Mestizo podcast here. I'm I'm a guest on on your show. Um, how do you how do you want to uh, open this up? I I'm I'm saying that we're okay, but you know you're you're the man in charge. How do you see this? <laughs> well, you're more than a guest, right? But I so I, I want to bring up a few things. I want to be uh, self critical on one end, and another on another end, I want to be clear about what we mean when we say this, right? There's a book, it's called Can White People Be Saved? Uh, it's a collection of several authors. Elizabeth actually wrote a chapter for this book. She, she's actually a, a contributor in the book. And so um, I, I want to bring this book up. One of the authors in that book is our friend Elizabeth, you know him, uh, Angel Santiago Vendrell. I believe that he uh, is a professor at Asbury, if I'm, yes. if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, he wrote the chapter on constructing race in Puerto Rico. Um, and, and one of the things that, uh, that he brings up that I want to read, I want to read in that chapter, one of the things he says, uh, he of course acknowledges the history that Elizabeth brought up. And then he says, since then, since that history, many scholars had argued for a colorblind society based on the myth of mestizaje or race mixing and rooted in a national identity. Then he says this, white elites have always asserted their power based on their race and the messagination, that is the mixing, uh, was ultimately seen as a whitening of the black and brown and not the opposite. In other words, the, the, the critique in the, inherent to the question that was asked by our listeners was, is the mestizaje an erasing of the black and brown? And to that, I want to say a resounding no. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not, in fact, our purpose to erase right. the black and brown. In fact, our highlighting of the Brown Church book by Robert Char Romero is our intentional effort to say uh, the brown identity, maybe the, the brown identity or the mestizo identity, uh, points a way forward because in the brown body, there is a unique theological idea that can, that can help make sense of some of the ways in which our history is a history of non-innocence, to quote Justo Gonzalez, our, our construction as a church has to be a construction that is a mixed construction that God's people have, have and should have always been a mixed group, uh, and that we have not done that well, that we as mestizos still are not doing that well. 
And because we're not doing that well, this podcast exists. Uh, there are generational issues that have come up. There are color uh, colorism issues that have come up. Uh, there are several things that have come up among the Mestizo Church that uh, go against, subvert what our Mestizo identity should in fact be teaching. And so, so one of the things that I want to say is we are intentionally holding up the ideal and saying we need to remember what this ideal actually was meant to teach and, and make sure that we're clear on it. Um, we're, we're not trying to be, you know, uh, a blanket categorizer in that regard, as much as we are trying to lay out something much more complex. And so that's what I would say in, in response to that, right? That we, we want to be self-critical and acknowledge that there are other terms that might uh, be more useful and that mestizaje as an identity marker uh, may not uh, feel like a sufficient term to encapsulate all of what is Latinidad. We know that. Afro-Latinos don't always feel included in this. And we're aware of that and want to address that. Uh, quick plug, World Outspoken will be doing a series addressing this more directly, this Afro-Latinidad. It's not a podcast, it'll be writings, but you can check that out. Um, but, but to answer the question more directly, are we trying to erase the black and brown heritage that is a part of our mestizo identity? Absolutely not. What we are trying to do is present the ideal and then get after it uh, by helping churches respond to some of the questions related to that ideal? I would say we're trying to celebrate uh, the hybridity. We're trying to yes. celebrate those aspects that have been um, squelched, that have been uh, made to uh, be derogatory or shameful. We, we wanna be out there. We wanna take that out and we wanna celebrate that in the spirit of Pentecost. That's what we wanna do. Amen. Well, hey, that being said, this is the end of season one of the Mestizo podcast, and we want to make a, a quick, exciting announcement. Uh, we have the two organizations, Aeth World Spoken. we have been exploring this for a while, and I think we are at a place where we can confidently say there will be a season two of the Mestizo podcast. The podcast will continue. Uh, one of the things that we have spent the entire season one addressing is obviously the generational question, the maybe up-down relationship of the diaspora born here and the immigrant generation that helped to find the church, find or, or, or start the churches, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, start the churches that uh, we are now in. So we've been looking at this up-down relationship in season one. In season two, as we continue to think about the diasporic experience, we want to now look at the in and out relationship of the diaspora. This is what I mean. A lot of our brothers and sisters in the second generation have either married into, into intercultural uh, marriages or interracial marriages, uh, or they've started to attend churches that are multicultural or complex. They're no longer uniquely Latino or uniquely Korean or uniquely African-American, that there's a kind of mixing that has happened in their church and in their marriage experiences that uh, goes beyond just the generational issue. So in season two, we're going to be exploring what does it look like for the Mestizo Church uh, to really do this multiculturalism project well? Uh, we're going to be bringing guests, not most of our guests, in fact, all of our guests from season one were Latinos. In the next season, season two, we're going to be bringing guests from the African-American community, from the Korean church. We're going to be exploring these topics by including others that have been allies with us in creating the mixed church. Uh, Elizabeth, you wanted to say something about one of the main subjects that we'll have to address uh, in season two before really getting after that. Absolutely. One of the things that we want to address early on is how to decolonize our understanding about difference. How to yeah. decolonize our understanding about difference. Um, part of the genius of colonization was to uh, create this uh, social construction of race and of difference because it was a way of dividing peoples and it was a way of taking away from people their self-determination. And so uh, that is why these derogatory terms have been used and so forth. And so we want to begin by decolonizing those pieces. It's going That's to be good. exciting. That's good. So stay with us. We start recording just like we did last time. We, we pre-record all the episodes. We start record recording in the fall. And we'll have some information on the World Last Spoken website as to when we have. We don't have a release date yet for season two. Uh, so keep on the lookout. Uh, that being said, 
few reminders to you as we wrap up season one. We want to thank you for being a faithful listener, for staying with us. Uh, we want to remind you, part of our gratitude is, is also a request uh, that you would uh, write a review. If you listen to this podcast on a platform that allows you to write a review, write a review, submit it so that people can find the podcast more easily. Make sure so you don't miss the announcement of when season two will be coming out. Make sure to follow at World Outspoken on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, and then be following along the other resources that World Outspoken uh, produces to help and help prepare the Mestizo Church for all the cultural changes that it experiences. Uh, Elizabeth, is there anything from Ayeth that you want to make sure people are aware of in terms of a resource to continue following? Yes, continue to follow our monthly conversatorios. I think that you'll find them interesting as well. Uh, we've been looking at some of these issues, and we'd like to have you as a part of that. The um, Mestizo podcast can be found on our webpage as well. And so um, many of the members of AET have been on this podcast. Uh, Roberto Chao Romero is one example. Karen Figueroa is another example. Um, it's important to have these conversations and to be a part of organizations that, have, uh, that give you a place to express yourself uh, in this continuing aspect of learning, going deeper in these pieces and finding books and doing research and so forth. And um, being a part of a community of many different scholars and pastors. So I invite you also to uh, be a part of it, www.aeth.org. Elizabeth, thank you for being an excellent co-host, for contributing of your wisdom. I know everyone has loved hearing from you on the podcast. It's been a fun uh, way for people to continue to hear your voice and of course of others like Justo Gonzalez who joined us for an episode and so thank you thank you thank you for contributing your voice to this this has been fun it's been wonderful and it's been a great privilege thank you Emmanuel for the invitation I look forward to doing more well hey listeners sacabo as they say in salsa song sacabo end of season we will see you again hear from you again shortly in season two blessings on you bye